We will open the book. Its pages are blank. We're going to put words on them ourselves. The book is called Opportunity, and its first chapter is The New Year Day. Another year has come and gone, and this one really, really flew by. I mean, it was one of the fastest years I've ever experienced. But a lot of things changed this year, and other changes are coming. Some we know about, some we don't know about yet. There's going to be some changes in your lives, maybe some changes in mine. I've had enough for a while, but uh, there's going to be some changes in our life. On New Year's Eve, Don Stewart was, was here, and he told us about some of the changes that were going on in the world, how Russia has already been moved down into the Middle East and how they are gaining strength militarily there. Iran is now ready to expand and better equipped to attack Israel. Turkey is changing its political alliances where they have been pro-West and pro-America and pro-Israel. They're moving away from that. Things are changing. And then he talked about the changing influence of the United States of America, our influence around the world and our strength militarily. Things are clearly changing. Most of you know for Mary and I in the end of 2014 in November, we were given the news that our granddaughters were coming to live with us, 18 and 16-year-old teenage girls. What joy that was going to be. (laughs) And um, so we were excited. And so 2015 was uh, a change. You know, they're beautiful girls. We love them. But we were given the opportunity to love them, to nurture them, uh, to care for them, and to develop their lives and their gifts and their talents. But it was a change in our life. In December of 2014, it was like November, December. I said, what, Lord, are you trying to tell me here? Pastor Brian Broderson, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, asked me, invited me to pray about coming down to Costa Mesa and helping him with the administration of the church. And the church is a large church. We have three conference centers here in the United States. We have a Bible college with 500 students in it. We've got four or five international uh, conference centers. We've got three or four major pieces of property in Costa Mesa. We are a church of about seven, 8,000 people down there that meet every day. We've got 180 missionaries, and it goes on and on. We own K-Wave. We've got uh, book publishing. We've got Calvary distribution, and it just keeps going on. And so in 2015, I said yes, and I've been down there, and that was another change. Both of these changes changed our daily life, the way that we got up in the morning, the things that we had to do, the schedules that we had to do. Our lives changed. But change is important in all of our lives. It happens. Sometimes it's planned out, and sometimes it's not. Many times change changes us. The Bible is full of examples for us. On Sunday nights, we've been going through Paul's letters to the churches and now to the pastors, and we've been going through them in a chronological order. Um, We've taken the study this way because we wanted to show you some of the changes in the Apostle Paul and his life. Here's an example. In 1 Corinthians 15, which was written in 52 A.D. approximately, He said, I am the least of the apostles. So of all the apostles, he was the number 12. He was the least of the apostles. In Ephesians, which he wrote eight years later, he says, I am the least of all the saints. Completely moves away from being an apostle to being just a Christian, and he's the least of those. 
And then in 1 Timothy, like we read or like we studied last week, in 64 AD, he's grown another four years. He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. As he grew closer to the Lord, as he became more aware of who the Lord was, as his life was changing, he went from an apostle to just a saint to the, the chiefest of sinners because he realized more and more and more how important the grace of God was and how it had changed his life. After 30 years of ministry, the Apostle Paul took half the book of Acts to tell his story. He says in Philippians chapter 3, these verses, I wish that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid, of, laid hold of me. Here he is, Philippians, one of the latter letters, again chronologically, saying that I may know him. Well, who would know Jesus better than Paul? after all that he had done and been through. As we think of the Apostle Paul, we think of his life being defined by change and an example for us. And what an extraordinary man Paul has proven to be. His missions and travels were epics. His mind is esteemed still today. He was a great theologian for sure. His writings are still studied 2,000 years later by those in academia, not just in the church schools, not just in seminaries, but in Harvard and Yale and in the schools of learning. The letters of Paul, the book of Romans in particular, are studied. Paul has written most of the New Testament, 25% of its volume, and nearly half of the books were written by this man of change. We continue to read and study his letters. He gave us doctrine. He gave us theology. He gave us practical application as well. Paul discovered that the changes in his life, which he sometimes resisted, were actually drawing him closer to the God that he loved so much. And haven't we all done that once or twice or many times? When God is calling you to something, a change is taking place, and you say, oh, no, not now, maybe later. Are you sure, Lord, do you want me to go up there and take that little tiny school on and run it? Are you sure, Lord? I'm glad you did, Linda. I'm really glad you did because that school is just growing and blossoming. But we've all faced that, haven't we? We've all faced a change in our life that we didn't want to do. His transformation was so great that even his name had to be changed from Saul to Paul. But before his conversion in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, Paul wrote to us, and he told us a little bit about who he was before God started to change his life. He said this, chapter 3, verse 3, For we are all of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. We're Jews. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh if anyone else thinks he may have more confidence in the flesh, I the more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, like you're supposed to be, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. 
Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. And concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I am blameless. What a statement Paul said about his life before Christ, that he could do that. He was a proud-to-be, law-keeping son of Abraham, boasting of the fleshly sign of his circumcision, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe where King Saul, his namesake, came from, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But look at the direction that Paul took in those things. When he thought about it, his life changes. So this is still Saul, that there's an upward thing. He says, I'm a Pharisee, a keeper of the law, and I do that to please God. So there was an upward relationship that he was bringing about. But his life was changed. Now he's a preacher of the grace of God. What a change in that one little part of that verse where he used to proclaim who he was as a Jew, now what he proclaims as a Christian. Outward, he persecuted the church. We read in Acts 9, Then Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were on the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And how was Paul's life changed? Now he's out planting churches throughout Greece and Asia. That's a big change from going to to persecute the church to planting churches. In Acts, we followed his three missionary journeys. And depending on how you read some of the things that he did, he planted 14 to 20 churches himself, and they planted more. And then he wrote them letters of encouragement and instruction. And inward, he says, I am blameless. I've kept the law. I'm perfect. But now, after 30 years, he's changed. He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. So from being that perfect guy in the law, Pharisee of Pharisees, he is now the chiefest of sinners. Those Hebrew values that Paul had, those traditions were instilled in him, gave him the passion for his life that he was living. In Saul's world, his activism against the church was an outcome of his training. Now he's been knocked off his horse and everything is changed on that dusty road to Damascus. And Paul's worldview changed. Jesus became the center. And many people who have had a comfortable worldview with Jesus in the center are being challenged today as Jesus is being ridiculed, as Christians are being uh, condemned for uh, their uh, narrow-mindedness and for the way that they think. So the events of our lives mold and shape us as well. The schools we went to, the things we've gone through, the jobs that we've had, they create our motivation. They create a, help us in our pursuits, our development, and our growth. But in our world today, changes are coming. The world is turning against Christians. Having a Christ-centered worldview is seen as uneducated and baseless in truth. And people are being ridiculed. The world is turning against what we would call Western thought or Western society. I'm going to give you a little bit of definitions. I had to almost go back to school for some of this, but that's what happened after listening to Don's message. It kind of challenged me. 
Western society may be thought of as following an evolution that began with the philosophers of ancient Athens, such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And it continued through the Roman Empire, and then with the addition of Christianity spread throughout Europe and Asia. Francis Schaeffer, an American theologian based in Switzerland, in his book, How Should We Then Live?, shows that the exclusion of the divine from the humanistic writings was promoting the rampant growth of secular humanism, and that would lead to moral relativism and ethical bankruptcy. His book, How Should We Then Live?, is subtitled The Rise and the Decline of Western Thought and Culture. And so those are things that are being pushed on us at the same time. So while Western thought and Christianity believe in real rights and real wrongs, we believe in absolutes and we believe in truth. Secular humanism, on the other, on the other hand, is defined as a comprehensive, non-religious life stance that incorporates these following things. A naturalist philosophy, a cosmic outlook rooted in science, a consequential ethical system. Well, what is a consequential ethical system? It is, of all things a person might do at any given moment, the moral right action is the one with the best overall for the circumstance. So if you're in a circumstance... And the way to get out of that circumstance or make it better is to tell a lie. Then that is morally acceptable because you made the situation better. It's not quite situational ethics, but it's consequential ethical system. The early church, going back a ways, was assault was an assault against Judaism. As the church was growing, the Jews were having a rough time with it, as was the philosophy of Greece the philosophies of the people that had been there about 600 years before. Change was happening in their world. Saul, the activist, was not trying to defend Judaism, but to protect his people and their historical position. The Jews had a tremendous historical position. They could go all the way back to Adam, and they could bring it all the way down through King David and through Solomon and through all of the stories that we love from the Old Testament. He was trying to protect that. Paul, on the other hand, was trying to bring mankind to an awareness of the truth of the gospel. So we see that this change that took place in Paul was amazing. And Greece, at the same time, was trying to promote their beliefs. So the churches are planted by the apostles, and the gospel message is going out into the world. And at, and at, and at its very beginning, the church faces off with Rome. They had to go through some changes. Titus destroys Jerusalem and murders Jews and Christians alike. Uh, some of the emperors, you might have heard these names, Nero, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian, and other emperors persecuted the Christians ruthlessly for the first hundred years, impaling them on crosses and killing them in, um, uh, in uh, stadiums and feeding them to lions and, and fighting them with gladiators. And during that time, 
the Christian church expanded to where it was almost 75% of the population of the world. It grew under that persecution. The persecution continued for the next 200 years until Constantine came along and then he made it the state religion. Following that, the Dark Ages, about a thousand years of nothing going on. But these two philosophies were still kind of back there. You had the, the philosophy of um, the, the Greeks and then you had the, the religious things. After the, the uh, thousand years of the Dark Ages came the Renaissance and the Reformation about in the 1500s, about the same time. So you say, Pastor Mike, why the history lesson? When are we going to get into the Bible? So, so we see change isn't new. I'm trying to point out to you that change isn't new and the changes that we're going to be facing, I want you to be prepared for because I believe they're coming. So there was a conflict between Judaism and Christianity. And there was a conflict between the Greek and Roman thought. And coming out of the Dark Ages, they still were there. The Reformation leading to Western thought and the Renaissance leading to secular humanism. And so we had these two parallel thought processes going on. The Reformation are people of God's book. It's the, it's the reformation of coming back to the things of God. The Renaissance was the rebirth of science and different things. And so that was what brought about the um, secular humanism. And these two main trains of thoughts have continued with us right up till to now. Now a new philosophy is coming. It's entering and it's opposed to both of them. And what we see developing is Islamic Sharia law. And don't Be surprised by this because it's coming. And let me give you some definition of what it means. Sharia law is the body of Islamic law. Sharia means the way or the path. Doesn't that sound peaceful? The way or the path. It is the legal framework within which the public and some private aspects of life are regulated for those living in a legal system based on Islam. Do you know that in the Middle East, countries are already under Sharia law? In Europe, cities have adopted Sharia law, and they're under Sharia law right now. Change is coming. No city in Europe thought that they would become a a city under Sharia law, but that's what's happened. So whether you look at the changing situation in the Middle East with Russia and Iran and Israel coming down, or the changing philosophy of culture and society that we're facing, it's obvious change is coming. So our perspective should be the day of the Lord is at hand. And I believe we're getting closer and closer to the day of the Lord. So when sharing on New Year's Eve for communion, I was given the, the, the privilege of sharing communion. I kind of looked at the passages, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about communion where Jesus met with his people. And the one that drew my attention was Luke. And those of you who are here, I shared it. And so um, as I was reading it over, the Holy Spirit impressed upon these, these words that were in the passage that I had never looked at before in a communion service. When the hour had come. What hour? The hour for Jesus to prepare his disciples for the change that was coming. Their life was going to change radically in just a few hours as his life was given as a sacrifice and he was going to be buried and then rose again. Looking at the four Gospels as a whole, we see Jesus with his disciples. 
Jesus had been betrayed by Judas already. The end is near. All four Gospels record the Passover dinner. Jesus institutes what we call communion as part of that celebration. And he explains the importance of remembering him, remembering him in everything. John adds the foot washing of the disciples by Jesus. He emphasizes that we are to serve one another and to love one another. Jesus told them that they would all desert him and Peter would deny him, which they all did. So John records for us in chapters 14 to 17, and that's where I'd like you to turn in your Bibles. We will get to our Bible study. John records for us what we call the upper room discord. And in these chapters are words that Jesus gave his disciples before the change that was coming into their life. Some of you are facing changes right now. Maybe you haven't even shared them with us. Maybe they're personal. Maybe they're private. But something's going on. The Fosters are about to be parents. That is a big change. So... Jonathan and Rachel, as you guys become parents, that's a change, okay? So those things are going to be happening soon. But Jesus prepared him with these words. So chapter 14, I'm going to go through and read off some verses. You can put a check mark by them so you can go back and read them over. I'm not going to try to read or expound each one of these. But I want you to see what Jesus was telling his disciples just before the big change. Chapter 14, he starts right off. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 2, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, if you're going to go prepare a place for me, then I assume you're coming back to get me for that place. And it says that in verse 3. He will receive us. In verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. In verses 16 through 17... The helper is to come and be with us forever. Chapter 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Amazing verses to tell somebody that you're going to just leave for three days and they're not going to be able to find you because their life is going to change radically. In verse 23, by keeping these words, we love him and we make him our own. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. In verse 26, he will teach you all things. Again, speaking of the comforter, will teach us all things, especially the words of Jesus. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I will say to you. And then verse 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He gives us peace. Isn't that a promising word for those of us facing change or looking at things that are about to change? You know, some of of us 
may want different aspects of our life to change. We want a new job. We want a new home. <laughs> we, we want to get off the mountain. We want to get on the lake. You know, we want to do different things. Some of us may be looking for change. Some of us may not. Some of us may be just scared to death of change. I like it just the way it is. I think sometimes that's maybe one of the things that's really hindering the silent majority or the Christian majority or whatever you want to call us is we like to our life so well. Just leave me alone. I don't want to engage in the process. I just want to have my house. I want to get my paycheck. I want to get my social security. I want to have my Medicare. Just don't bug me. And I think that things might change to where we can't do that anymore. We may have to come out of those little protective bubbles that we're in. In chapter 15, he goes on. In verses 1 to 8, he talks about being the vine, and we are to abide in him and produce fruit. Chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, is takes, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Change can be a form of pruning, by the way, because when sometimes when your life is changed, you spend a lot more time in prayer, and then your life changes and you bear more fruit. You are already clean, in verse 3, because you, of the words which I have spoken to you. And then in verse 9, he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in me. I think it's interesting. He says that we're to abide in him and the Father is abiding in you. It should be very comforting to us who are facing change to know that God loves us, that the Father loves us, that Jesus loves us. The word abide there in this passage and all through the passage is resting, fixed, and continuing. So when you're abiding in Christ, when you're abiding with the Lord, when he's abiding with you, it's a fixed relationship. It's one that continues. In verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is saying he wants the joy of the Lord to be your strength. He's reminding them the things that he has said to them. In verse 12, he tells us again to love one another. This is my commandment to you, to love one another as I have loved you. As things change in our lives, one of the most important things that we can do for each other is to demonstrate love for each other. As we lose loved ones, as we have serious surgeries and operations, the most important thing we can do as a church is to reach out to others and to love on them. And it may be when... Somebody has a baby that we feed them for the first week. We make sure they have dinner. We make sure that we're willing to run to the grocery store for them. We can do those things for them. Those are the ways that we should love one another. That's body life, and that's one of the things we are supposed to be doing. And then verse 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. And I love that song, Friends of God. We're, the, we're a friend of his. He's our friend. That is so awesome. And then in verse 16, to know you did not choose me, but I chose you. I like the fact that the omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, can't make a mistake, God chose me. 
I love that because I feel that that's pretty secure. You know, sometimes we wonder, you know, wow, is this thing uh, really the way it's supposed to be? But when you realize that he chose you, it should be very, very reassuring. In verse, uh, in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, He told us these things so we should not, we would not stumble. He's talking to the disciples who are going to not see him for a few days. They're all going to scatter. They're all going to uh, deny him and they're all going to fall away from him. But he's told them these things so they would not stumble. So when they huddle up, when they get together, when they're hiding behind the closed door saying, What in the world has changed? They're going to remember these words. And he told them so that they wouldn't stumble. And uh, what a long three days that must have been from the crucifixion, the burial, until that resurrection for these people who sat and heard these words. How they must have been mulling them over. He told us not to be worried. He told us not to fret. He told us that his joy was going to remain with them. But the Romans, you know, they've got him in that cave. How are we going to get him out? What's going to happen? Had to be a tough time. In verse 7 of chapter 16, again, he promises the helper. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away as the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then verse 13, he tells us that the helper or the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. You want your Bibles to come alive to you? When you open it up, say, Holy Spirit, teach me. The word says you will teach me into all truth. You will lead me and teach me. I am asking you, Holy Spirit, please, right now, as I read this chapter, open my eyes, open my heart, that I might learn more about you. That's a great prayer before you start to read the Bible. In verse 22, he talks about their sorrow being turned into joy. Therefore, you now now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and your and you and your joy. No one will take away from you. And once I'm sure on Resurrection Sunday, that joy could not be stopped because we're proof. Two thousand years later, as I told you a few weeks ago, an organization that was started by a guy who was born in a barn, who didn't really learn a trade except for being a carpenter who um, picked out some really ratty guys to be his organizational team, you know, his board of directors, whatever you want to call them. Some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, some doubted everything he said. He picked out that kind of an organization, and then he starts this organization, and he leaves them to do it on their own. What corporation would ever survive started like that? But we're not a corporation. We're not an organization. We are an organism. And we are alive as a church. And that is so important for us to remember. That's why 2,000 years later, we can read these words and they can help us through the changes in our life. Changes that you're going through now, changes that might be coming down the road. These words will help you if you'll take the time to read them. In chapter 16, verses 23 to 24, he says, He will answer our prayers. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The assurance of answered prayer. God hears our prayers. He will answer our prayers may not give us the answer we want, especially when we're going through changes. 
but he will answer us. Yes, no, or wait, is what he'll tell us. In verse 31, he asks them this question, do you believe? Jesus asked them, do you now believe? I thought it was interesting. That's the same question he asked Martha when he told her that he was the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? And these are reassuring words to us because, again, if we're going through change, we're moving somewhere, we're changing jobs. Jesus asked us, do you believe I'm with you? Do you believe I'm I'm, uh, leading you through this change? I am taking care of it. And then in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Promise from God, in the world you're going to have tribulation. Some of us have tried to do things the world's way, and it hasn't worked out too well. We find it much easier and much better when we do it his way. And then we come to chapter 17, which I would think is the true Lord's Prayer. He prayed for them and he prayed for us. In verse 8, he says, For I have given to them, talking to about the disciples, the words which you have given me. And those words are still the words that we have in our laps today, the ones that we're looking at as we go through the study. In verse 13, he prays that their joy, that they may have his joy. Can you imagine that our founder, our Lord, our Savior, the one who chose us, prayed to his dad and said, can they please have my joy? Remember, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. But the joy of your saved soul was so great that he would have gone to that cross just for you, not for all of the souls of thousands of years, but just for you because he loves that much. In verse 15, he prays that they should be kept from the evil one. He wanted them not to be snookered by the one who comes to rob, steal, and destroy. So he prayed for them. In verse 17, he prays for their sanctification and that that would happen through the word of truth. Sanctification is basically the process from the time you accepted the Lord until the time that you're completed in heaven. I don't think it gets finished until we're perfect in uh, in practical matters. I think you're perfect positionally, but I think sanctification is something that you're going through right now. And I guess I could prove that by asking, has anybody lost their temper this last week? Okay, well, then you're not sanctified. You're not there yet. But it's probably happening less and less. And that bad word you used to say, is probably coming out less and less. That's the sanctification process that's going on. And you're changing what you look at. You're changing what you read. That is the process of sanctification. Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified, sanctified, and that happens by being in the Word of God. In verse 20, he now changes the prayer, and he starts to pray for us. I do not pray for these alone, the disciples, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. And through their word, we believed because they're the ones that wrote these words that we're studying tonight, wrote the epistles, wrote the things that we have. In verse 21, he prays that we may be one, that we may have one body. And that was so neat on New Year's Eve to have four or five or six churches here. We had four or five pastors here. It was really a neat feeling to have this place full and an exciting time. And then in verse 23, he says that they would uh, love him. 
Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. After this, Jesus leaves the upper room. He crosses over to the garden. He was arrested and he was abandoned. But the disciples were facing a big change. Things were about to change. Think about those disciples, how it must have been. Jesus prepared them by giving them these words of encouragement. I think Paul, who continued to have his life and ministry changed, gave the special task to take the gospel to the nations of the world, to take the gospel to kings, to take the gospel to Macedonia and to Greece and to Asia and to Rome, he must have needed to be comforted. And what a change for Paul. From a Jewish Pharisee and hater of Christians to a missionary and church planter to the Jewish nation, that was a big change. He's going back to his brothers as Jews, and he's saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Let me read you from the Old Testament and prove it to you. And he does that for a while. And that must have been exciting. But that was a big change. Imagine when he walked up the steps to the temples and into the synagogues, the people who knew him would say, oh, here comes that Paul trying to change our, our thousands of years of history. He wants to put away Moses. He wants to put away the law. But then the Lord comes to him and says, okay, Paul, go over here to the Gentiles. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't talk to Gentiles. No, I want you to go be a missionary now to the Gentiles. So he had to change his whole mode of operation. He had to be encouraged for those things. A missionary, a church planter, an ambassador to the Gentiles. So throughout Scripture, a name change has a significant spiritual implication. You remember the story of Abram. His name was changed to Abraham. He was 99 years old. He had a promise that the whole world would be blessed through him, that he would have children the size of the stars and the sand and all those types of things. He would be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but you will be called Abraham. Leave your people. That's a big change. Leave your people. Leave your country where you're safe. Another big change. You're 99 years old and you're going to be the father of many. Oh, that's a really big thing. You think having two teenage girls at home at 70 is tough? Try starting out at 99, okay? That's tough. Big changes. But Abraham's, Abram says that his name is Father, and Abraham is the father of a multitude. Another name that was changed in the Bible was Jacob to Israel. In Genesis 32, you remember the story, Jacob wrestles with a man on a ladder. Or now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and you have prevailed. So he went from Jacob, the surplanter or the deceiver is what his name meant, to Israel, one who strives with God or one who God rules over. And then Simon to Peter. 
You remember the story when he was at Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, he said, who do you say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We know that Peter made many changes in his walk with Christ from a worldly fisherman to a pillar in the church, from an impulsive big mouth to a tender shepherd. Peter shepherded the church. When change comes our way, how do we handle them? What do we do with them is the question I have for you. Sometimes changes are a little mysterious to us. Changes can impact the way that we live. They can help us to anticipate things that we don't even understand. Do you know that your names have all been changed? Every one of you has had your name changed from sinner to saint. What a great change of name. You were a sinner, but now you're a saint. And with that change comes a change. Remember that a, that a name change is a significant spiritual change or encounter with God. And it couldn't be any more true than in that. Paul told the Corinthians they had been changed. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He was speaking of the ultimate change that takes place when we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to transform or to change men and women. And by his grace, we have all been changed. But he told us in the world there would be tribulation. There would be changes to come that we might not understand, but we should be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. So you Christians, as change comes your way, say, bring it on. Because I can go to four chapters and get encouraged. Actually, you can go to 66 books and get encouraged. You can find all kinds of encouragement in here. You can go to one another and get encouraged. And I think sometimes I've been working with my littlest granddaughter. She wants so hard to be able to communicate. And I'm trying to teach her that communication is talking and listening. She does not understand the listening part at all. She is, she, her goal is to be an attorney. She's one already. She will not, you cannot get her to quiet down so you can get your thought out. So um, a, um, I, I came up with an idea of a TLD. You educators like a TLD. Maybe moms will like this. Do you know what a TLD is? It's a talk listen device and it's a, an egg timer you get it you turn it over you get to talk and i'm going to listen and when I, you're done talking i get to turn it over i get to talk and you get to listen sometimes we need somebody in the body of christ to listen to us not to quote scriptures to us not to tell us how to to handle our change but just to listen to us and say, I'll be praying with you, 
as you continue to work with God through the things that you're dealing with as he changes your life. I am excited for 2016 to see the change in Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, the Sunday night Bible study ministries, and to see what he's going to do with us as we look forward to him changing us person by person and as a body. Let's pray.